This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Uh, hey, everyone. Just a reminder to tell Joe's mom she looks like she lost weight because I accidentally parked on the grass again. Hey, guys. Mics are hot. Quiet on the set. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is June 1st, and welcome to the unofficial start of summer. And like a four-leaf clover, this podcast is back to help you change your luck. Today, we welcome the author of the book, Conscious Luck, Gay Hendricks. Plus, having trouble with your renter or having trouble paying rent? We'll chat today with rental real estate expert Justin Poe. Of course, we'll also toss out the Haven Lifeline to a fellow summer enthusiast, and I'll save time for some of my summer travel-themed trivia. Remember when we used to travel? Man, those days were fun, weren't they? And now, two guys who already have some sweet farmer's tans rocking. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G! Hey there, and look at you. You found us. You made it through the weekend, and you are here in the basement with us. Virtually, of course, it's like one big giant Zoom meeting, the Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey, everybody. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and the good luck four-leaf clover on this podcast. Across the table from me, my friend OG. I'm a five-leaf clover. Come on now. hey Don't love me together with all those other four-leafers. <laughs> I'm not good luck. I am the luck. I am just luck. Who needs luck when you got me? Absolutely. How are you, man? Good weekend? It's a fantastic weekend, yeah. I mean, it seems like almost every week is the same, so... You know, other, like, than, other than it's just markedly hotter. You're like, oh, this been. is this is the weekend. Oh, we just had a. Oh, sorry. My son actually said that to me the other day. He's like, what day is it, Dad? He said yeah. it's Thursday. Oh, well, since school's got out, I don't keep track of days anymore. Like, did you keep track of days since the middle of March? I don't think so. You know, you're people- reminding when your math homework was done. <laughs> you know how people can keep track of what's going on in the basement, OG? Hmm. Let me think. They could get a stacker calendar like a it's have you seen those firefighter calendars you and i should put those out oh boy oh boy (laughs) that is a great idea men of the really good idea men of the the basement there's let's let's see you me doug brad lark who makes the t-shirts yep brad uh i bet you we get richie to do it taylor yep 
that's six, and we just all repeat. We have two. I get December just two. My birthday month. Yes, uh, December will be you with the cat wearing nothing but a Santa hat. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, if you don't want to throw up in your mouth and you want to find out what's going on in the basement without a calendar, head to stackybenjamins.com uh, forward slash stacker. The stacker is the place where when we're out traveling again, we will detail all the moves, everything that's going on, uh, as we hopefully travel the country and uh, meet some more people. I actually had a couple of meetings about that this week, OG, which was pretty fun. Nothing on the schedule yet, but the first place you'll find out is the stacker. Also, you'll get money lessons delivered right to your front door, AKA your email, stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker. We've got a great show today. Gay Hendricks is here talking about luck. This is a fascinating topic to me because I have met so many people who you feel that they just get in their way over and over. <laughs> like, why do you keep getting in your own way? Gay says you can change your luck. He's got a history of helping people change their luck. And he's bringing that to the basement this morning. But first, we have some headlines. So let's get started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. Lots of unemployed people, as you know, beginning to return to uh, work lately in many parts of the country, but jobs are tough for another group of people. Summer jobs dry up and teens face the highest unemployment in decades. Younger workers go to positions at pools, restaurants, and golf courses hit by the coronavirus. This is written by Patrick Thomas. Young Americans having little luck, speaking of luck, finding summer jobs. Coronavirus outbreaks throughout the country have dried up. Many of the traditional opportunities high school and college age students rely on each summer. Junior workers seeking seasonal employment are striking out so much that the April unemployment rate for teens aged 16 to 19 hit 32 percent, marking a high not seen since at least 1948, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. As more teens hit the job market in June and July, when school is generally out, that rate typically climbs higher. Teen unemployment had been steadily falling since the af aftermath of the 2008 recession. Summer jobs had been rising in popularity, reflecting a healthy labor market. The pandemic swiftly put that trend in reverse. More than 2 million retail jobs disappeared in April as thousands of stores closed. I think we already know uh, what, what went on there. I want to skip down a little bit, though, OG. It says, without a chance to earn money over the summer, young workers are missing out on thousands of dollars of extra income that could be used to help their families or put toward expenses like tuition payments. This is a weird time to be a teenager as well. And maybe if you are a parent, maybe it's a good time to work with them at a very early age on competitive job hunting skills. It is seriously going to be competitive this summer. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how this goes as the summer wears on. I happened to notice yesterday as I was driving around that uh, a number of fast food places had help wanted signs. It just popped in my head because my oldest is 13 and he was talking about, you know, when do I get to start working to earn money type of thing? I don't, I don't know that I ever had that enthusiasm <laughs> that he does. Like, <laughs> when, when can I start working? Oh, I was Wait. excited. I think I was, I, don't, I can't remember, but I don't know, I guess 30 years of doing it will just kind of jade you a little bit. You're like, <laughs> it's this hey, work, uh, kid. Uh, don't do it. Play Xbox. But, um, <laughs> you know, we can trade spots. So I wonder if it'll be regional. 
I wonder if it'll be dependent on like the different areas. Obviously you think like New York, really hard hit area, a little probably slower on the, on the rebound, so to speak. So I'm, I wonder, I wonder if it's not more noticeable there. I'm wondering about online opportunities, just thinking a little differently about, are there any jobs now virtually, like a lot of people are working from home that even young people could do working from home? Are there things that could somehow be sorted or are there, are there documents in some Google drive somewhere that need to be looked through from a computer? Sounds like you're hiring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does someone have a Google Drive yes. folder that's a complete yes. mess? What if there were a podcast that had the messiest Google Drive ever? Could yeah. somebody maybe sort that out? But I'm wondering about that because I think when I was your son's age, I just thought about how do I make some cash now? I didn't think right. tactically about the job. Now I think if I had it to do over again, how do I get the experiences quicker that, uh, that will make me more competitive in the marketplace? Maybe I wouldn't have worked at the Tasty Freeze as my first job or that oh, free ice cream. Actually, I think the McDonald's drive through made me pretty damn good on the microphone. Just saying. Just saying. Would you like fries with that OG? Yes. I haven't been to McDonald's a long time. That's the other thing I was thinking about when I was driving around yesterday was I haven't had a McDouble in a while and I should probably go eat three of them. Just <laughs> that's, to... that's when you know you've been cooped up too long. Exactly. Can we go out to dinner? Like, I don't know, McDoubles or something? <laughs> Who knows? Large yeah, fry. Yeah, it'll be tough, I think, for the, uh, I think, it's, you know, it's just, it's going to be tough for a lot of people, not just young kids. I think it's going to be, be an interesting uh, rebound. I've got a ton of faith in the, in the future, obviously, but things tend to happen at their own pace, not the schedule at which I would want them to happen. But well, I'm, I'm hopeful. I also think it's a mistake if Junior doesn't have a job to take the, the summer off. Don't get me wrong. I don't think there's enough play. I think that we can all use a little more playtime, but I also think that if you waste the entire summer and don't do anything like there's got to be some, some, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the master classes or Skillshare, something like that, where junior can still learn something about work or about the world. Yeah. I'm going to disagree with you on this one, depending on how old they are. I mean, there's if, lots of opportunity to learn about the world. If they're 13, and, maybe not. But if they're yeah. 16, 17, 18, I think it's probably, probably. 18, you're getting toward college, right? I mean, yeah, shouldn't you be, sure. shouldn't you be uh, on uh, your thinking way. about school at that point? I remember the sophomore and junior year summers was spent working my tail off during the day and being crazy at night with my buddies and getting ready for football. I mean, yeah. in the gym. And then, and you know, early in the morning, and then I would work most of the day. I installed pools by hand, like above ground pools. Look for a guy that did that. Which is why you you're a financial some, planner. I know, which is why I'm jacked and tan, yo. <laughs> um, That's, man, that was hard work. But yeah, I worked at a restaurant, worked at a golf course. I did all this stuff that you're talking about. But I was always gone. Like I was gone from the moment the sun came up until late at night. I don't see kids doing that a lot these days. I don't know. Oh, I worked harder than kids could ever work. Is that where that was going? I was wondering no, where no, that no. was going. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying like, I'm, I'm saying. Nobody could work as hard as me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying being gone all day. So I've got three or four years yet before my mine are a little bit older. So I'll be interested to see how they progress or whether or not they just sit on their butts and play Fortnite four years from now also. Oh boy. Wouldn't that be great? You'd be a proud dad. Be level one million. 
And in our second headline, this comes to us from CNBC, written by Annie Nova. Can't pay your rent? Here's what you should do. Annie writes, a month-long battle with the coronavirus made it difficult for Esteban Giron and his husband to pay their $990 rent. Quote, I was so sick I could barely walk to the bathroom, Giron 41 said. He's lived in his apartment in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, for over seven years. And if he had to move out, it would be devastating, he said. I've never felt so at home, Giron said. The coronavirus pandemic has made almost every facet of American life harder, and coming up with rent is high on that list. More than 20 million jobs in America disappeared in April. Nearly 15% of people in the U.S. are now jobless. So what do you do? Well, not only will we link to this in the show notes, but we thought we'd go one better on my dad's shortwave. We have Mr. Rental Expert himself that we turn to, (laughs) Justin Pogbeck with us. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Great to be back. This is a horrible time for a bunch of people, though. If you're in his situation and you're not sure how you're going to pay the rent right now, what's your first move? Your first move is you're absolutely looking at applying for unemployment, whatever severance package you may have gotten from your previous job. Take a look at that. You're factoring in this $1,200 that is coming from the government from the coronavirus package that they passed, if you haven't received it already. And there's also an additional $600 that they're adding to your unemployment check as a result of this whole thing. So the idea is to first get a sense of what resources you're working with that you have left. Then you can make a determination of whether it makes sense to try and stay and write it out, or if you really need to be thinking about consolidating households with someone else, a brother or sister, cousin, whatever, to bring that housing cost down. And there are different strategies that you're going to use depending on what your focus is going to be. So for those people who are lucky enough to still kind of have have some income, even though their hours may have been cut or that kind of thing, um, the strategy really is go to the landlord and offer them something. So let's say your rent is $2,000 and you could conceivably pay that, but you're still dealing with all of this uncertainty about what's gonna be going on in the future. You could go to them and just make them an offer, be like, I can afford to, I can pay you 1,800 today. And if that will satisfy my rent obligation, you can have money today, as opposed to waiting, which is what the eviction moratoriums are kind of allowing people to do, which is wait until two, three, four months down the road to then deal with to then deal with this obligation. As as any business person knows, money today is worth way more than money like four months from now. Yeah, I feel like Um, almost, Justin, like it's a like it's a credit um you know, back in the 90s that I've told this story many times, people that are new to the show, I was horrible with money, horrible with credit cards. And when I started dealing with collection agencies, it, it, it sounds like you almost treat your landlord like he's your collection agency. Instead of 2000 will you just take 1500 and we'll call it good? Because then to your point, then they get something. And on my end, I can hopefully keep my record clean then. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not dealing with late fees and, and these other issues as well. Now, that may not be the situation that people are in. Their situation may be a little more serious. So then the conversation turns to rent deferment, where I'm not paying rent this month and I'm allowed to like take that rent amount, divide it over the next 12 months, let's say, and then pay a little bit extra oh, yeah, sure. in the future. So that allows people to kind of deal with today 
and then address the rent that they owe later on. It sounds like um, of the two strategies so far, though, the deferment where I'm going to where I'm going to pay it later versus will you take less? I mean, just thinking strategically, I want to come to the table with take less first. I would, I would imagine. Well, it really depends on your situation. If you don't have, if you're not able to pay that eighteen hundred or two thousand now to make a credible offer, then deferment kind of becomes your next option. Yeah. Now there are people out there whose situation is even a little more dire than that, where they need to start thinking about consolidation of households and moving out and that kind of thing. So one strategy there is use your deposit. So you've paid a deposit to that landlord when you moved in. And the strategy basically is to tell the landlord, keep my deposit, accept it as my last month of rent, and let me go ahead and move out and we'll call it even. The advantage to the landlord is I don't have to go through an eviction process. I know exactly what the situation with this apartment is. I do get to keep the deposit because that really wasn't the landlord's money. They're just holding it for that, yeah. for that resident. And the advantage for the resident is we're out, no must, no fuss, no ongoing legal issues, and I can start moving on to the next stage of my life and figuring out what I need to do next. So those are kind of the three paths that people need to be thinking about as far as which of those is best for them currently this particular month. And they actually need to be thinking about this on a month by month basis because this whole situation is changing. Um, in the CNBC piece, it was, it was 15% of people are unemployed. Now that number is approaching 40% as we come into the end of May. And we still don't know what June is going to, is going to hold. You have some numbers too. I know uh, you're on top of the data here. What are some numbers around rents and rents being paid? So it's really interesting because in April, the headline was 24% of people didn't pay rent. So like one quarter of people didn't pay rent, which sounds like disaster. The sky is falling. But what people in the property management industry understand is that there's a good 15% of people who don't pay their rent in that first week anyway, because of financial issues, the timing of when their paychecks fall, they have other priorities. So all of that is still going on. So really, it wasn't 24%. It was really the, the difference, the delta there is the 9% change because of the situation that we're in. And then by the end of April, 91% of people had paid their rent. So not too bad. Now, when you switch to May, that initial 24% in April that paid, that number changed to 31% in May. So the numbers are telling us that the sky is falling. It's just not falling as quickly <laughs> as a lot of the landlords assumed it was going to. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, in the big scheme of things, that's kind of a glasses half full yeah, it is. And a lot of that has to do with this $1,200 stimulus payment that people got and the additional unemployment monies that people are getting. Now, depending on where you live, $1,200 may go further or may not go further, depending on what your rent amount is. So in California, that's like half a month's rent, whereas in some rural areas, that may be as much as two months rent. So it affects people differently. But being the government, they pick the average and 1200 bucks is the average cost of a two bedroom apartment nationwide. So that's what they went with. But, but, basically. but, but to your point, it still feels like a bandaid. I mean, just a little, little tiny bandaid, but I need to ask you about the other side of this equation. If I'm a landlord and I know that there's a chance that my renters might be struggling. However, I've got a mortgage on that property. 
what are mm -hmm. some things I should be thinking about as a landlord to make sure that I'm able to keep my house and I also mm -hmm. keep my, my tenant? Absolutely. Landlords are definitely the other side of the coin. While the eviction moratoriums happen kind of in a fast and furious manner, the to that from the landlord's perspective is rent deferment, which is a conversation that, or mortgage deferment, which is a conversation that they're having with their lenders on an individual case-by-case -case basis. So it's a much slower process, but landlords should be definitely thinking about having that conversation with their lender, and they should be thinking about that now. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there's this assumption that, you know, once the, this eviction moratorium is lifted, landlords are going to kick everybody out through the eviction process and it's just going to be a mess. There's only one nightmare that's worse to the landlord than having people in the building that don't pay. And that's having a completely empty building. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah, I mean, which has, because you if the building's empty, like you have nobody on the hook for anything. Yeah. And it also has some implication. I just learned this recently. It has some implications for your insurance policy as well. The insurance policy assumes that there's going to be people living there. And if there aren't, you may be in violation of some of those those covenants in your insurance policy, too. So it's a, it's an interesting situation there. So keeping the your tenants and working with them is your best option right now, because even if your particular geography or um, you know jurisdiction doesn't have an eviction moratorium, the courts are closed. So either way, you can't move forward on an eviction process. So working with the resident is your best bet of getting money in the door today to deal with all of these other obligations that you have going on. Because it's not just the mortgage. Property taxes weren't forgiven. You're still paying maintenance people, and they're now having to do more because they're doing extra cleaning around the property and the amenities because of this whole COVID thing. So all of these other expenses are still going on. So definitely should be thinking about some kind of mortgage forbearance kind of conversation with your lender and specifically have engaging in these conversations with your residents, specifically around whether to accept some kind of rent reduction or rent deferral or looking towards maybe accepting that deposit and letting them move on. But that's what landlords should be thinking about right now. I've got one more question on a completely different, well, not completely different issue because it's still around rent. But if you're able to to make your payments on time, one thing we've seen always in times like this, your credit score becomes more important. If your mm -hmm. landlord runs into trouble, maybe with somebody else in the building and can't keep the house or or you're looking for a new place to live, whatever it might be. Uh, having a, a good credit score makes sense. I'm seeing these companies that are advocating for using your rent payment, being able to report your rent payment as a part of your credit score. Do, mm -hmm. do you like those companies? Is that really a leg up? If you're a renter, should you be looking for ways to, to report your rent on your credit score? It's an interesting concept because it is a monthly obligation that most people pay on time, on target, every month, which is partly what a rent score is supposed to be. Are you handling your obligations? Yeah. It's interesting because the rent score and going back to like the 2008 financial crisis and all of that, like companies started to not pay attention to certain things on, on the credit score. Like if you had a foreclosure on your credit score, a number of rental property companies 
wouldn't even worry about considering that part of your score. Because it was so um, widespread. Exactly, because it was so widespread. My gut feeling is that we're going into a situation where there's going to be a similar allowance made because if you've got 40 percent of people who are unemployed and probably a vast majority of those are renters and you've got a spot to fill, you're going to need to count currently going on economically if you're going to rent to those people, if you're going to hold them to the higher standards of last year, then it's going to be more difficult for you to rent and find those quality renters for your property. If only, Justin, there was a guy who uh, had a book about this or maybe some resources about this stuff that could maybe help renters <laughs> or, or landlords out. I wish there was such a place. Actually, there is there is such a place. So I recently wrote a book called Rental Secrets, and it's about strategies that people can use in order to control what they're paying for rent. And the idea is to help renters understand how landlords think so they can actually negotiate better. Because this whole thing really boils down to the relationship that renters have with their landlords and landlords have with their renters as well. Um, because now we're in a time where with these eviction moratoriums, renters can just say, well, I'm not going to pay until you force me to pay, which means you may be waiting for money for four or five months. Yeah. Whereas if you have a better relationship with them, they're less likely to do that to you. And it plays out in the numbers. Most renters are trying to pay their rent and work with the landlord. They're not really trying to hurt the landlord or be vindictive against the landlord. They're really trying to work with them. So that book, Rental Secrets, really speaks to this issue that a lot of renters and landlords are facing right now. And another great resource is rentalsecrets.net. But yeah, there's a lot of people who are wrestling with this situation, and this is going to be a really big topic for quite some time. And if you want to hear me talking specifically about the things in that book, we'll also have that link because uh, Justin was here maybe, what, six months ago, seven months ago? Yeah, 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 talking specifically about those things. And also, we'll have a link to the CNBC piece as well in our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. Justin, man, thanks for being a big help to us today because a lot of people in this uh, in this horrible situation. Yeah, absolutely. Big thanks to Justin. It's on all sides. If you're a renter, if you're a teenager, I think the, the lesson is got to think creatively right now, OG. There's ever a time to get the creative, creative brain moving. This is this is now the time. I think that's our lesson with today's headlines. Gay Hendricks on hold on my dad's shortwave radio. I was super excited about talking to Gay because of the fact that all of his years working with people in psychology, he's a guy, OG, that understands that in many, many ways you make your own luck. And what's funny is he starts off with this topic, like many psychologists will, in a very spiritual, woo-woo kind of way. But there are actually some hard technical things that you can do to give yourself better luck. And I think that especially now when we're talking about paying the rent or being a teenager and trying to get a job, heck, being an adult and trying to get a job, changing your luck is job number one. 
He's a man with tons of uh, different experiences after his PhD in psychology from a little university called Stanford. He spent 20 years at the University of Colorado and was a professor in the counseling psychology department and also founded a company that he runs today called the Hendricks Institute. He has been executive producer and producer of a couple of movies, and he also is a detective writer. Maybe we'll talk to him a little bit about detective writing as well today. A guy I'm excited to say hello to, Gay Hendricks on Dave Shortwave. And here he is, finally, on My Dad Shortwave. I can't wait to talk to him. Gay Hendricks is with us. How are you, man? I am so good, you could hardly believe it. <laughs> well, that that is exactly, with a guy who wrote a book or co-wrote a book about conscious luck, exactly what I would have expected you to say. Well, I'm the luckiest man on earth. I've been the luckiest man on earth now for at least 40 years because that's when my wife, Katie, said, yes, she would marry me. <laughs> so I've had uh, 14,500 days of waking up feeling like the luckiest man on earth just because of that. I want to dive into that in a second, but I have to say, before we get started, I was even more excited about talking to you, Gay, when I found out that you've had books banned. You've had people <laughs> want to burn your books. That's that's the guy who should be a friend of mine right there. Well, as a matter of fact, it happened with a group down in Dallas, Texas. It was my very first book. It was when my daughter was in the first grade, and now she's 51, so I'll tell you how long ago it was. I wrote it because I was volunteering in her classroom a lot that year, and I was just finishing my PhD at Stanford that year. So I had like an hour a day I would go over and volunteer in her school. And I noticed that the teacher spent a tremendous amount of what I would consider wasted time just getting the kids back and organized and sitting down and ready to do more work and that kind of thing. So I created a set of exercises, and I called it the centering book, and there were ways of helping kids learn to relax again and, you know, some guided meditations and things like that. But one of the chapters had some stretching activities that I got from an old yoga book for children way back, I don't know how long ago. So when the book came out, it became an education bestseller. The next thing I knew, it was getting burned because a group had decided that I was trying to import yoga into the schools, and they decided that I was some kind of an Eastern uh, spy or something trying to sneak yoga material into the uh, schools, and so they burned my book. But I'll tell you what happened. It made the sales of the book skyrocket. And so if any of you out there have an urge to write a book, see if you can say something in it that gets it burned, because it's <laughs> guarantee you a bestseller. <laughs> Oh, that's so awesome. I well, you know what? You know what, Joe? I got to tell you one other thing. When I got the list, I got the list of 250 other people. They were burning their books. One of them was Thomas Jefferson. Another one was John Dewey. Oh, um, Eleanor Roosevelt. So I was in this great company. There were all these great people. Their books were getting burned. So I was very proud of that. What a great list to be on. That's what I think. I, I, I tell everybody, like, hey, guess what? I finally made the big time. Getting back to what you said, you being the luckiest man on earth, have you always felt that way? When you were a kid, did you think that you were lucky? Uh, no. One of the things I do right away in the book, Conscious Luck, is I tell the story of this moment that happened to me when I was 14. It was the first time I really got hold of this concept that you might be able to change your luck by just things you did in your mind or in your heart. There was this kid next to me at a movie theater named Danny, and 
they were having a drawing and they had three prizes and they put all of our tickets in a goldfish bowl and we're going to draw three names out. And Danny leaned over to me just before the drawing and said, Hey, watch this. I'm going to win. And I said, okay. And sure enough, they pulled his name out and he ended up winning a wristwatch. Now this was in 1959. So a wristwatch was kind of a big deal back then. Sure. Afterwards, I asked him, how did you do that? And that's where this story came from, because he said that he had seen that some people in his family were lucky and some were unlucky. He had one of these big extended families. And he said, OK, one day he said, I'm just going to be one of the lucky ones. And so he made this kind of conscious decision that he was going to get on the lucky train. And we quote a Stanford professor named Tina Selig, who says that luck is like a wind blowing. And our job is to get our sails open to it. And so that's the moment I opened my sails to it right there. That's so funny you say that because in my notes here, Gay, that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about because I want to do this quote exactly because I found this fascinating. Dr. Tina Selig, a professor at Stanford in the Department of Management, Science and Engineering. So this isn't some woo-woo professor. I mean, my my son's an engineer. It, they're about systems and processes and, and uh, uh, scientific expression. But she says, and, this, and I quote you quoting her, who says that the key is, quote, understanding that luck is rarely a lightning strike, isolated and dramatic, but a wind that blows constantly. You, and I love this analogy. You need to build a sail made up of tiny behaviors to catch the winds of luck. Explain that for me, this idea of a sail catching the wind. Yes. If you're not open to being supported by luck. If you're kind of close to that, like you firmly believe that you have to work for everything you get. I mean, that's a good thing in a way because that's gonna keep you focused on working for things, but you also need to be open to being supported from outside by unusual events. I had a moment once back in 1995 I had a big office in Santa Barbara. We had a big 4,000 square foot center at the time, and we're doing lots more big seminars than we do now. Uh, we cut back to do more things like we're doing now, podcasts and video and things like that. But uh, anyway, we used to have, you know, sometimes 100 people in the place. One day, I came back from the airport, and I was going to go home, but I decided to just stop by the office for five minutes to pick up a couple of things. And I didn't even know my wife was in the office at the time. I thought she was back home. And so I got to my office and I was only going to be there five minutes to pick up the stuff. It happened to be that a stockbroker had just come in and he had about five minutes and he was going to tell my wife about a dot-com startup that was just happening and that he was going to do a private placement thing for. First of all, the guy was 27 years old. He had braces on his teeth. He was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. <laughs> See, where I come from, that's not what a stockbroker looks saying, like. But very trustworthy. First thing yeah. you look for. Yeah. Yeah. But this was California. You know, I just moved there from Colorado. And uh, my wife and I moved back in the 90s. What he was telling her about was a stock that was just being offered called software.com. And it was a new company, but they had a unique thing. They had a thing that made email work better. 
and they were already leasing out this thing to all the different email companies, and they were already doing you know several million dollars a year. So it wasn't exactly two guys in a basement coming up with something. It was something that was moving right along. So we had an opportunity to kind of buy the, not the angel round, but the friends and family round that is often after the um, angel round. And so to make a long story short, I was skeptical because of the, <laughs> the braces and the Hawaiian shirt and the flip-flops. But my wife was really into it. Katie said, yeah, this sounds really good. And the stockbroker was actually the stockbroker for Katie's parents. So, you know, it was it was a legit sort of thing. So I said, okay, and how much is it for? And he said, $30,000 will buy you 10,000 shares. So three bucks a share. I said, Katie, I want you to make the call. I'm tired. I just got here from the airport and um, I'd been out doing seminars for 21 days or something like that. And, and that's so, all. And that's also, by the way, not small money. I mean, $30,000 to put in, into a startup to put into this type of thing. I mean, he's not talking about a little decision here. Uh, no, not at all. And at the time, I would say it represented maybe 5% of our net worth, something like that. So yeah. it was not an insignificant investment. Well. Roll the clock forward to the dot-com boom over the next couple of years, and we watched the stock go up from $3 to $155. So that made a true believer in me in the power of luck. And, and by luck, I'm talking about being in the right place at the right time for the ideal thing to happen. You know, because if I'd gone straight home... I can picture Katie telling me about it later, and I would have probably said, I don't know, you know. Uh, but being right there and making that decision ended up like hitting a 40 to one shot kind of thing. The part of that story that you didn't share yet that I found very compelling was, Gay, the fact that you had a goal for that money and you guys were trying to put some money toward a foundation. So you had like this, it, it was it was interesting to me that you had a focus and then you were in a place where there was something that would help you toward that focus. And I thought that for me was part of building that sale that was also pretty damn important. Well, that's why one of our first principles is what we call developing luck-worthy goals. Because what I've found is that money chases good goals and luck chases good goals. And so what I wanted to do and ended up succeeding in, I had been a university professor, but I got very frustrated with that because of all the stuff I had to do that was not involved with teaching University students, you know, all these incredible committee meetings and, blah, blah, blah. you know, it ate up 90% of my time that I wished I could have spent dealing with things that mattered. So when I decided to quit being a university professor, I decided to open up my own kind of a graduate school that had no grades. It required nothing extraneous. So we ended up, um, we, we still do it to this day. The Hendricks Institute um, graduates Oh, sometimes 50 to 100 graduates a year that are mostly other professionals that are getting our skills to be used in psychology or medicine or law or whatever the line of work they're in. So I was really happy. I gave that that first million dollars or so went into the establishment of the foundation, which is still thriving today. You know, it's interesting. You say that you wouldn't have a statistics class. I heard that like 86.4% of statistics are made up on the spot. So 
I, mean, I think that's probably true, especially if you hear it from a politician, probably. <laughs> or a podcaster, right? <laughs> uh, at this point in the conversation, you and I both know something, and and that is that there is a, a percentage of people listening who are walking down the street saying, you know what, this is just a bunch of woo-woo junk, right? This is just... Uh, this is stuff that really isn't important. I need something more grounded. And you have said before that initially when it came to the idea of conscious luck, you felt the same way. Yeah, I did. I actually have a very skeptical mind and I'm kind of proud of it. Actually, I read scientific studies if I'm interested in something. And I'm one of those geeks that always reads the training manual when I get a new thing. Um, everybody kids me about it, but I, I, I actually love nothing better than sitting down with a good new training manual for my computer or my electric razor or something like that. And uh, I'm famous for that. But I really want to get to detail on how to do something. Well, and I think to begin to kind of ground this conversation, obviously, we can't go through all of the eight principles. But one thing I think that is very clear that I'm hoping, Gay, we can teach people a little bit today is that intentionality intentionality really is that's where you start here. And that's where it looks like to me, the average person should start. Yes. Uh, well, we started with commit to being a VLP, a very lucky person. Every powerful change process in life has to begin with willingness and commitment. You have to be willing to stop smoking. Let's say if you're unwilling to do it, you can't get started at all. You might get then willing to do it and make a commitment to it, and then you fall off the wagon and start smoking again. Then you have to learn the skill of recommitment, which is just as important as commitment. But begin with willingness and commitment. And wherever you're listening to this right now, just ask yourself honestly, am I willing to be luckier tomorrow than I am today? And am I willing to be luckier every day than I am? was the day before. So in other words, would you be willing to make your life partly about being more open to luck supporting you? So just find out in yourself whether you feel that willingness. If you do, take it one step further than into commitment. If you're sitting here, I'm, I'm doing this from my office right now, and I've sat across from a thousand executives at least. I ask them no matter what they want to change in their life, to just look me in the eye and make a commitment to it, a 10-second commitment to it. So whatever it is, let's think about being lucky. And that is, I commit to being luckier every day of my life. Try it on, just like you try on a new shirt or a blouse. I commit to being luckier every day of my life. See, once you make a commitment to something, then your life becomes about the fulfillment of that commitment. I think that's a worthy purpose for life, one of the most worthy. My life purpose is to expand in love, creativity, and abundance every day as I inspire other people to do the same. That's what I want to do in this moment, and I want you to then fulfill whatever life purpose you come up with for your life. It's interesting as you're talking about this and I'm thinking about committing to luck, I'm thinking about a few things. I'm thinking about then it's easier to shrug off adversity. I'm also thinking about people that think they have to be perfect right away. 
I absolutely, and longtime listeners of the show are going to laugh, but I, but I love board games. I think board games are a lot of fun, but I get frustrated gay with people that want to be perfect at it right away. And I'm like, no, just commit to playing the game, right? <laughs> commit to playing the game to being in there. And sometimes, sometimes you'll be on it. Sometimes you won't be, but I feel like commitment is a lot different than being perfect. You know, when my daughter was little, I took her to horseback riding lesson. She was maybe six or seven at the time. I remember the first time they had her trotting around on the horse with the trainer kind of running beside her, this lovely lady. But Amanda at one point fell off the horse and I as a parent kind of freaked out, oh my God, you know, but the trainer just got her right back up on the horse and pretty soon they were trotting around again. And, you know, if she'd been really injured or something, she wouldn't have done that, but she knows that the thing to do is make a recommitment as soon as possible after you fall off the wagon. And so the art of recommitting is just as important as the initial commitment. You know, like I, I was just mentioning golf, my main golf buddy uh, here that I play with probably three days a week. He's got about 19 years of sobriety. And he was telling me how that first moment when he stepped up in front of that group and said, hello, my name's John and I'm an alcoholic, to just admit it, you know, just to say that and call it like it is, and then to make a commitment to not having a drink that day. You know, that was the starting place for everything. And no matter what you're committing to, in this case, I want you to make a commitment to being luckier every day. Beyond that, what you're going to have to do is to clear out some personal barriers. To do that, you have to overcome something that I wrote about a lot in my last big book, The Big Leap, which is what I call the upper limit problem, which is the tendency to set ourselves a low thermostat based on old limiting beliefs, a low thermostat setting of how much we can, how much good we can do or how much money we can make or how much love we can express and experience. We set an upper limit on that based on our limiting beliefs. And then when we get our head out above that limit, we find some way to pull ourselves back in by getting sick or having an accident or uh, something that causes us to pull back inside. And so that's why you need to study carefully the upper limit problem, because that's where your main personal barriers will be found or all those things you do that keep yourself held back. I was so fascinated by that book as well. And there's one fantastic quote, and I'm not going to get the words right, but it's a quote from uh, Michelangelo, which I'm sure that you know about the problem with us is not that we set our goals too high and don't achieve them. It's that we set them, you know, we set them too low and blow them away, right? <laughs> we, yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. I've met people over the years, you've known people over the years who have described themselves as snake bit or cursed or I can't get out of my own way and I just don't know. And I feel like these people consistently have bad luck. If you're somebody listening gay that has that issue and you feel like you're unlucky, whether it's with, you know, investing, personal finance, anything in your life, your career, how do you turn, how do you start to turn that around? Well, everything begins with changing one thought consciously in your mind. So if you change one single thought, it starts a domino effect. Like we were just talking about developing that thought, I commit to being luckier every day of my life just making a commitment to that for no good reason, just because you want to. That sets in, in motion a chain of action that begins to influence the outer circumstances of your life. 
Do you remember William James? The, he's called the father of American psychology, who was a great uh, Harvard person during the 19th century. Well, think of the 19th century. Telephone, telegraph, automobiles were invented, steam engine, locomotives. All of those things happened in the 19th century. But William James said that the greatest discovery of his time was that human beings can change the circumstances of their life by changing things in their mind. So, for example, if you've been going through life with the curse of not feeling wanted or not feeling worthy or feeling rejected, there's probably some good reason for that way back there in the past, but it gets changed by something you do right now. And the right now first thing is to just conceive of some new thought you can have about the situation. You know, like if you've been thinking of yourself as unworthy and unlucky, just to conceive of the thought of, I could be luckier every day of my life. I could have my life be about enjoying greater and greater luck. Just changing that thought sets in motion a very positive chain of dominoes that begin to knock those old limiting beliefs out of your mind. So it's done one step at a time. It's not a painful process. It's not a scary process. It's a process kind of like deciding you want to go to the store and then making decisions that get you there. But it seems like the inverse of that too, what doesn't work then, and I'm inferring and tell me if I'm right or wrong here, saying to yourself over and over, stop being so unlucky, isn't the way to go. Like focusing no. on the unluckiness, it's replacing that thought with I'm lucky that I'm, I'm worthy. Yeah. Cause if you conceive of a problem in your mind, the universe will keep confirming that that is indeed a problem by giving you more and more and more of it. And I've, had, so, I've had those. Yeah. And so you do want to get into criticizing your negative thoughts because that's like a dog chasing its tail around. And what you want to do is just shift over and begin to conceive some positive thoughts. And also don't forget your body because we are body, mind, human beings. For example, there was a famous study done about mugging. They took some muggers, some, some people that were in prison for mugging, and they had them watch a bunch of films of people and ask them, okay, based on their body language, which one of these people would you mug? And there were some of them that all the muggers said, oh yeah, that guy, he's the one. I'm... <laughs> and what turned out is that the people that were good candidates for mugging were kind of they didn't, they weren't walking with purpose. You know, they were kind of ambling along and it didn't look like we, you know, they had much purpose or anything. And so they all were the ones that the muggers agreed on. But what we need to do is get a sense of our own chosen purpose in our life. You know, what is it that above all you want your life to be about? These are big questions and they deserve. Yeah. time to let ourselves consider them. You know what we do with, with folks? We have people who come here like a typical situation is a CEO of a corporation will come here for a one-day or two-day intensive where, we're, where they're the only person we're working with. And one of the first things we have them do is go in a room by themselves for 10 minutes and just sit there and wonder about this question. What is it that I most love to do? What is it that I most love to do? Mm. And we just have them meditate on that for 10 minutes because that is a key to finding out what your native genius is. It's 
the thing that really wants to be expressed through you is almost always identified with something that you most like to do. And so for me, for example, when I was four or five years old, I got a trike for my birthday and it happened to be raining. And so my grandmother let me ride the trike around her large living room. On the first day with my trike, what I did was I went over and I made a big cardboard box in the corner and I had my granddad help me write the word problems on it. I commuted to my box in my tricycle and sat in my box. And the idea was that people were supposed to come and tell me their problems. And then I would tell them how to solve them. Like you're Lucy on the peanuts. I was Lucy before there was even a Lucy. (laughs) In fact, people used to kid me about that when when they finally invented Lucy comics. I was about 10 years old, I think, when Lucy came along. Anyway, I had a hard time explaining it to my family because I told them that I I couldn't handle medical problems. I don't want to hear about your medical problems. You can talk to a regular doctor about that. I talked to you about problems of living, you know, but they didn't understand what exactly I was getting at. But somehow my five-year-old brain already knew what I was going to be doing with my life. How did that happen? I don't know. It is amazing. Back to that intentionality. I mean, it's funny you say that because one of my favorite pictures of me as a kid in elementary school was me with all of my cousins putting on a live radio show for my aunts and uncles during Thanksgiving. And I put the whole thing together and look at now 52 years old, look at what I do now. So it's, it's, it is funny how it manifests itself, but you're right about CEOs and about, well, anybody gay chasing, chasing things. And you talk about intentionality. I'm sure most of those CEOs, when you ask them that question, they find out right away the things that they're doing with their day have nothing to do with the thing that they most want. That's exactly right. In fact, I've had many conversations when I used to do on-site consulting with executives. I can remember one particular time I was out in the Midwest in St. Louis, and I was walking down the hall of a big firm down there with the CEO. I was there to coach him for a day or two. And what I do oftentimes is just kind of follow them around for a couple of hours and just watch their interactive style and that kind of thing. And in the course of the conversation, I asked him, What is the most valuable thing you do per time spent? Something that if you even only spent five or 10 minutes doing it has the greatest effect. And he got kind of a mystical look and he said, you know what I'd love to do every day more than anything else? If I could just sit quietly for 10 minutes in my office with absolutely no distractions and tune in to what's most essential. I stopped him right there on the spot and I said, okay, let's go back and do it. So we hiked back to his office on the other side of the building and we just sat there together for 10 minutes of absolute quiet, just breathing. I'm happy to say that he actually put it in his calendar. Then I started having him put it right into his calendar, you know, 310 in the afternoon or 1140 to put it in at different times. But once you get something like that into your life, you're going to have better access to creativity. It's so amazing. Uh, Just the fact that as you're even telling that story, I'm thinking 10 minutes, that's ridiculous. Why isn't he doing it now? But none of us do that now. Exactly. You know, we get put off into other areas of life and then don't get back to what really matters. The book is Conscious Luck, Eight Secrets to Intentionally Change Your Fortune. By the way, I also love the story about how even the making of this book was lucky. You had written part of the book already. And then a friend of yours, who's an editor who you'd sent the book to, she decided to help you finish it. 
It was really great. Uh, Carol Klein is a dear friend of mine, and she also lives in this beautiful little town of Ojai, California that I live in, a town of about 10,000 people. Back in um, somewhere around 2005, Jack Canfield and I and Carol wrote a book together called You've Got to Read This Book, which is an interview with 50 or 60 well-known people about the book that changed their lives. Anyway, I'd gotten to know Carol there, and I had a lot of respect for her. And what happened... I don't know if you know this or not, but I've been writing mystery novels now for 10 years. I've got two different series. I've got a series about a Tibetan Buddhist private eye, and I've got a series about a London private eye of 1908, Victorian era kind of private eye, a crosstown competitor of Sherlock Holmes named Sir Errol Hyde. So I've been having a great time. I've published uh, eight mystery novels since uh, 10 years ago, so almost one a year. But I was having so much fun with that that even though I'd written the first half of this book, I was having so much fun writing mystery novels that I just didn't want to go back to conscious luck. And that's when Carol (laughs) ran into me at the farmer's market and said, hey, can I write the last section of it and kind of put all the interviews together and everything? And I said, go for it, you know, and here we come out now. We have, uh, we just, uh, uh, I just noticed this morning that we just hit number one in new releases as of this very day. Yeah, it was a really interesting read. And I love the fact that you take something that seems so beyond us like luck and puts it right, right in your hands and it's available everywhere, correct? Yes. And particularly though, uh, there are some good bonuses if you get it through consciousluck.com because we have two audio meditations, one for morning and one for night. Obviously we couldn't put that in the book, but if you buy your book there through Amazon or wherever you want to buy it uh, and send a receipt, you get this beautiful set of meditations. Awesome. And you know what, Uh, guys, we'll link to that in our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. One more thing, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what's going on at the Hendricks Institute because you guys always have stuff going on there. Tell me what's what's happening. Well, we're right now in the process of creating this year's creativity camp. We have a, a new style this year of creativity camp. Instead of in person for a couple of days, we're doing it four weeks in a row in two-hour chunks on Zoom. So we've got all the different activities compressed into different things that you can do on video with us. And so we're going to do that live uh, next month. We're also uh, reconfiguring our big summer training to do something virtual with that. And we're doing all sorts of different creative things. We, oh, we just are in the process of uh, launching a couple of new e-courses. I took all my golf materials from my old book, Conscious Golf, and I put them into a new uh, golf course that teaches uh, these principles on the golf course. I feel bad that you sit around with nothing to do, Gay. I feel so bad. (laughs) Well, thanks for taking a little time out of your busy day to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Well, good. May you stack many Benjamins in your lifetime. Hey, trivia fans. I'm your official tour guide to summer, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. What better activity is there this time of year than going to the beach? Problem is, I'm here in Globe, Arizona. Now, being a man of leisure, I would naturally just hop on the road in the old trusty El Camino. But she's in the shop getting the air rotated and the tires and the fluid changed out and all the turn signals. Joe's mom won't lend me her Harley, so I guess I'm stuck here, for now anyways, but no bother. I jumped on my trusty computer and ordered a new swimsuit. It looks like a really sweet one, too, because, I mean, like, who doesn't like being around a well-seasoned stallion in a good-looking swimsuit, am I right? Well, good news. A few days ago, I found a suit that combines two things I love most, 
hammocks. Who doesn't love a nice relaxing hammock and bananas? Can't wait to see how they pull this one off. While I go and crack open the packaging, I'll let you think over today's trivia. Question is, since people like to road trip in the summer, what was the most visited national park last year? I'll be back faster than you can peel your banana. I'm not sure he really wants to open that packaging, but I think uh, since he just walked up the stairs, um, good time for me to say this could get ugly in a hurry. And there's no way he's wearing that on that cal. <laughs> if if this calendar thing ever happens, there's there's no way he's he's doing that. Hey, everybody, wanted to take just a second and talk about the stacker because of the fact that if you've been with us for a long time, you know that the stacker has money lessons. However, the money lessons suddenly stopped. And they are coming back. I've actually written five new money lessons now, OG, and uh, we're going to be cranking up the new money lessons. If you are new to the stacker, the money lesson piece of this, there's two pieces of what goes on the stacker. I should start from the beginning, shouldn't I? Start from the beginning, Joe, Mama always says. Don't start in the middle of the story. Although in a novel, Gay Hendricks will tell you that's a good idea. Start right in the middle. But to start the beginning of the story, there are two pieces to the stacker. Number one is Joe's money lessons. You will get those periodically. If you're starting from the beginning, when you first subscribe to the stacker, you will get those on a weekly basis until you catch up with the rest of us. Those lessons I work on to create 52 lessons so that you have a full year of, of lessons. That is the goal. I actually have them in uh, various stages finished, but then the whole Arizona stuff hit Selling my house hit. Uh, what else hit? About fifty, about fifty other things. Coronavirus hit. A ton of other stuff. But you can catch up with us. Get a bunch of great money lessons. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Also, though, lots going on. We are planning a big event for June. You can put this on your calendar, guys. June seventeenth. But you're going to get all of the details on the stacker. OG and I and the team from our affiliated shows. Money with Friends and Earn and Invest podcast. Uh, Bobby and Doc G will join us and people from some of the biggest investing houses in the United States talking about investing during the time of coronavirus. So if you're somebody who's been a little worried about your portfolio, you were worried when it went down, you might be worried again, especially after hearing Phil Town last week, worried again about how quickly the market ran up. We've got you covered. All the details are going to be at the stacker. It will always be first at the stacker. Stackybedjamins.com forward slash stacker for more. Hey, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm not sure I got the right package. It looks like instead they sent me like this Y-shaped flossing fabric with this little spot you'd put like hot dog in or I mean, I tried flossing with it. Material gets stuck in my teeth. I'm going to have to go look this up on YouTube or something and see how it works. But while I do, let me first get you the answer to today's trivia. The question was, since people like to road trip in the summer, what was the most visited national park last year? In 2019, a whopping 12.5 million visitors flocked to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which straddles the border between North Carolina and Tennessee. Well, hopefully some people will get to spend some time there this summer. Wouldn't that be awesome? Lots of social distancing on those hikes, people. Okay, maybe I'll ask the mailman what the hell this hammock banana thingy is. Yeah, I think trying to floss with that's a bad idea. Uh, 
I think that the reason the Great Smoky Mountain National Park is bigger than Yellowstone, which was your guess, is just because of the fact there's a bigger population center much closer. I mean, I've been to both parks. Great Smoky Mountain National Park's beautiful, OG. But uh, if you really want the full national park experience, I don't think anything, nothing I've been to beats Yellowstone. We've never done Yellowstone. It's on the agenda. Uh, in fact, we're going to do uh, a trip with the kids with their school. They do that. And we had to cancel it this year because of the whole, you know, stupid thing about everybody getting sick. So we'll see. We'll see if we're able to pick that back up again next fall. That's the goal. Fall of 2021. That Glacier was fantastic last year, as was uh, a place you've been. Yosemite is phenomenal. Just a, a great park. Big Bend was amazing. So remote. Big Bend. That's a park you could get to. A little easier. Yeah. A little easier. Well, there's some stuff that I do sometimes on the weekends that cause me to travel a little bit. And if I ever have to go down in that area, because there's some things to do down there, I'll extend it by a day. Is there, and, and, and there really is something down there? Yeah. High quality. How about that? I want to talk about one more thing before we move on to the Haven Lifeline which is big thanks to Gay Hendricks for stopping by. And, oh, gee, this, this idea, you know, when, when Gay started talking, I don't know about you, I kind of thought, yeah, this is, this is kind of a little bit of a mumbo jumbo. You change your luck because you believe that you're lucky. But here's the thing. I started thinking about this intentionality, like just, just going into something with an intention that it's going to happen. I, yeah. just, I just watched um, the History Channel series on grant and grant I've had this got a dvr grant had this feeling the whole time we are going to win and it was up until he got to the eastern theater against robert e lee everybody was all down because robert e lee was really dictating the terms of the battlefield the entire time and grant got there and the very first thing that he did was brought this different spirit to the entire battlefield that no, we're not unlucky. No, that guy over there is not luckier than us. We, we, we control the day. And while that alone does not win a war and does not change things at work, I think if you don't have that, it's impossible to win that. I think that's gotta be the first step. This reminds me a lot of, um, like Wayne Dyer type stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, Ex yes. Which, you know, he passed away some time ago now, but he was probably the only person that I would actually stop on the PBS channels and watch, you know, cause you'd go through and do those PBS, you know, you flip into the channels and PBS would have those specials, you know, and then interrupt it with get the, uh, oh, yeah. the special DVD package and, you know, be a donor into PBS right. or whatever. But I would, I would sit through that crap just to watch Wayne Dyer talk because he had such a good presence and, and uh, a lot of the same message, which is, you know, you make your own luck. You do make, um, make your own luck. So, Conscious luck. Be conscious about it. Hey, let's uh, be conscious about throwing out the Haven Lifeline right now. We'll tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, OG. Sunshine, baby. Right mm. now, it's just all about sunshine. Sunshine with your loved ones and more time in the sun. How about that? That's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now and you'll get a free quote no, not a free stadium blanket or a free toaster. You'll get a free quote, something that you actually need. And if you don't have life insurance and you have a family, what the heck are you waiting for? Why do you need 
a couple of dorks in the basement to tell you it's time, people. It's that you want to change your luck. Go get some life insurance. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. Their application simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual. More than 160-year-old insurer. Today, we are going to throw out the lifeline to our new friend, Jay. Say hi, Jay. Hey, Joe and OG. It's Jay from Roswell and not Area 51 Roswell, but suburb of Atlanta, Roswell. Thanks for your show, and congrats on the new affiliation with Westwood. And Joe, best of luck on your new journey to Arizona. I look forward to hearing about it. Um, I've always been a finance guy and uh, studied it in college and love to talk about a little EBITDA or internal rate of return. But this lockdown has me exploring my inner economist, especially with all the supply and demand equations and what that means for the supply of toilet paper and beef. My uh, inner economist is uh, contemplating the following. Since there are roughly half the number of publicly traded companies as there was, as there were in 1996, um, and at the same time with pensions disappearing, there's a lot more money flowing into 401ks, IRAs, and these publicly traded companies. So, you know, just based on the basic uh, supply and demand graph, it seems to me that if there's more money chasing fewer stocks, that that alone would raise the price of uh, stocks in general, regardless of their performance. So I'd just like to get your take on that. Uh, am I wrong to think that supply and demand will alone drive stock prices higher in the future? Any thoughts? Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jay, big thanks for the question. And by the way, if Jay likes to sit around the barbecue on the weekend and talk about EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes and appreciation, by the way, for people that aren't geeks on Jay's level. Appreciation, but okay. <laughs> Whatever. Appreciate appreciation. Uh, we just have this. We have to, we haven't played the shout out for a long time. So, Jay, this is from us to you. Congratulations, man. Nice work. Uh, it's, I didn't know I was going to have to work so early in the morning. <laughs> Personal finance and not economics, I think, is our forte. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> it's somebody's forte. And someday we'll figure out whose forte that is. But, but I do think that's a, that is an interesting question that he poses. I can't say that it's not correct, but I think there's more to it. I don't know that if you did an analysis to figure out whether or not, you know, what's driving stock prices, I don't think that you could pin it down to just simply something simple like supply and demand, because people still don't like to throw good money after bad, right? I mean, there's, there was a study not too long ago that I saw that the number of trades on TD Ameritrade's platform, since they went commission free, went from something like a million a day to three and a half million. Oh, a day. no. Before Are you kidding the coronavirus. me? Yeah. yeah. So I think that in and of itself could be looked at as something that people are considering as well. The cost is less expensive now. So uh, something simple like free versus 495 a trade had an impact in trading. Whether or not that has an impact in people adding new money is another thing. I don't know. I can't say that you're wrong. I don't have a real good sense of this, but I bet that it's more to it than just that. And if that's what you tell yourself to keep on investing, then I would keep doing that. But um, at some level, it still has to be profitable organization, right? I mean, you can't just be buying stock just to well, and that's what buy I was a just... dog and just be like, well, some other idiot's going to do it. I mean, that happens. But last week when uh, Phil Town was here, OG, and we were talking to him about the Michael Burry 
Dr. Michael Burry thought that indexing, indexing over time is more and more and more people index. Some of the unintended consequences of just straight indexing, uh, just a few companies maybe controlling the board votes, right? Yeah. Of all these different companies, plus pricing. How do you price a company when a lot of people are just throwing money at the wall and don't have any idea what the real price should be? I think indexing also has the potential to drive up prices irrationally. But still right now, there's still way more money that's actively managed than there is on the index side of things. And it's definitely growing. The rate of that change yeah. is fav heavily favoring the index approach. But then it just stands to reason also that the likelihood of outperformance will go up Yeah, if you're an active manager. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be some some break-even point in there where so much is just going to be passive that it's actually going to make more sense to try to swing for the fences the on the active side the because you've yeah, got the, a one in two chance, so to speak. I don't know. but The Sir John Templeton thought if everybody looks yeah. right, he automatically starts looking left. Um, yeah. That's I, a long ways from now, though, by the way. So, so don't read that into like, yeah. hey, I think active management beats it. But like we've said before, the message on this just gets diluted. People say things that they don't really understand. They'll say like, oh, you can't beat the market. So that's why you index. Bull crap. There's tons of people who beat the market all the time. The thing is, is that you can't prove it in advance. And it's very costly. So because of those things you tend to use a passive approach or, you know, most people advocate that. So it's doable and there's lots of people who do it all the time, but it's hard to predict because it's hard to predict. Let me say that again. It's impossible to predict our performance in advance and it's expensive to try for the vast majority of people it just makes it easy just to yeah, just go buy an index fund. Call it a day. Are you are you saying that when Ray Dalio beats the market, he's not just altruistic and throwing out those returns for free? Like yeah, right. like Bridgewater's not not just working for uh for point zero four percent. Well, no, he's not. But none of those guys are. No. And even mutual funds that outperform don't. Yeah, I mean, I get it. It costs money to try to do that, and I'm just saying like it. I'm not even saying it costs money to hire the person who does it. Obviously, in your example with Dalio, I mean, dude's a gazillionaire. A lot of the reason he's a gazillionaire is because he eats his own cooking. You know, he's like, I'll keep on investing my own money in this as well. So there's a lot of different areas to this that we could explore, I suppose. But back to the original question, it's simply a supply and demand issue on stocks likely to uh, affect the market. Eh, I don't think that's the only reason that it does it. Certainly not a reason not to invest, but I think there's more to it than that. So says me. Well, and if, and if you say it, then I guess we're done with that. So let it be written. So let it be done. <laughs> Thanks for the philosophy question, Jay. And uh, also, Jay is getting a shirt that uh, Brad Lark, did you see Brad Lark in our Facebook group, The Basement, talking about how the, the shirt that we're going to send Jay, the greatest money show on earth circus t-shirt, is probably his favorite design he ever did. Uh, might be my favorite shirt as well. And Jay is getting one. If uh, you have a question for us, whether personal or philosophical like Jay's, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And thanks also, Jay, for the, for the kind words. The Westwood One thing has been going fantastic so far. 
some super people that, that work there, as we mentioned last week. And, uh, well, we'll have more about uh, my trip to Arizona uh, in the near future here. All right. That's going to do it for today. Just a couple quick housekeeping things before we bid you adieu. First, big thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this show. Uh, this one's from I am Trent 317. Who names their kid that, OG? It's easy to remember your what, birthday. What's your name, Jimmy? Billy? What's your name? I am Trent 317. Oh, who's your dad, Elon Human Musk? Cyborg Relations. I think I like mine better. Yeah. <laughs> Five stars. Mom has this on the fridge this morning. I got up and there it was, and she's gloating as she's making pancakes, straight shooters on financial advice, five stars. They'll always shoot you straight. They can bake fantastic cookies and teach you about parenting and trivia. Best way to spend your coronavirus commute and listen to financial talk. Hey, Trent, thanks for that. And if you have a review of the show, so you can tell people what they're getting into when they listen to Stacking Benjamins, maybe slightly different than Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey approach to financial discussions. Maybe mom will be gloating about yours in the near future. And finally, if you're somebody, we talked a lot today about getting luckier, getting yourself on track, changing your mindset. Well, if you need to change your team and it's time to get the ball rolling as we move into recovery mode, OG and his team are taking clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. That will get you on their schedule and then you can talk about how they would interface. I'm going to try to put this as business-like as possible, OG, how their unique capabilities can help drive superior results for your investing dollar. TM. <laughs> TM. <laughs> Copyright 2020. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned? Yeah, sure thing, Joe. I'll help you out. Hey, everybody. First, take a lesson from Justin Pogue. Can't pay your rent? Think creatively. Like everything, you may have more resources than you think. Second, take a lesson from Gay Hendricks. Want luck? Hey, maybe it's time to make some of your own. But the big takeaway? Don't ask the mailman about the banana hammock thingy he delivered. That guy's ability to come up with some disgusting jokes on the fly. It's disturbing, actually. Who'd wear that thing as a swimsuit? What a kidder. Big thanks to Gay Hendricks for coming down to the basement. Virtually, of course. And giving us some time on how to use these four-leaf clovers. You can find out all about Gay's book, Conscious Luck, at ConsciousLuck.com or on our show notes page at StackingBenjamins.com. Thanks also to Justin Pogue. You'll find his book and other resources on his website, RentalSecrets.net. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. 
There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. So when I was editing the show last week, last Wednesday show, when I said I might talk about something later and then I couldn't remember it. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Remember how I couldn't remember that time? I couldn't remember when I said I had something to remember. I was talking about Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was the number one most affordable city that people could move to, according to the study that we had last Wednesday. Go back and listen to last Wednesday show. Three Bennett. bridges. Yeah. I said I had a Pittsburgh story. So we were on, speaking of teenagers, we were on this East Coast trip to visit all these different colleges and also to do some sightseeing. So we went to William Mary and then visited Old Town Williamsburg, which is fantastic. Have you been there? Don't think so. The ghost tour in Colonial Williamsburg is probably the best ghost tour I've, I've been on, if you like those things. The one in Charleston, South Carolina is pretty good too. But the one in, uh, in Williamsburg was great. Maybe it was just the woman was a phenomenal storyteller, but good stuff. So then we went up the coast, visited schools in New York and Boston. In fact, at Boston College, we had maybe the best student take us around campus. In fact, it is scary in hindsight, now that my kids are well out of college OG, to realize how much of our college, maybe not the college decision, but the decision to put a college more seriously on the list or take it off the list happened because of the kid, the one kid who took us around. Like this school is made up of a population of thousands of people, right? In most cases. And yet we're making decisions based on how much we like this young man or woman. And I remember at William and Mary, we have this woman taking us around maybe 20, 21 years old. And I asked the question because I don't know if you've seen how much William and Mary costs. I asked the question, so financial aid programs, tell me about financial aid and a little bit about how that works. And she turns around because she's leading us across this beautiful commons area, turns around and goes, very flippantly goes, oh, I don't know anything about that. My daddy takes care of all that. And then turns back around and keeps leading us. I immediately hated it. I hated, I hated the whole school. I thought the school was pretty cool until that moment. I'm like, yeah, no, daddy takes care of it. No, no, not happening. But at Boston college, we had this young man about the same age and he's very entertaining, but he stops us underneath this big statue of, of a man in these flowing robes. And it's this beautiful statue. And he points out that 
at Boston College, this is one of only one of only two statues on campus. This is Ignatius Loyola, uh, I believe, was the first one. If there was only a place I could look this up, but I'm just going to try to tell the story. He said, there's this one. And you know what the second statue is? What? Doug Flutie. (laughs) (laughs) And And for people who don't know who Doug Flutie is, he had one of the most amazing passes in college football history. And it's right outside the football stadium. And it's him rock back with a football in his hand, getting ready to throw the pass. Chuck it downfield. Those yeah. are the only two. And everybody started laughing. It was, it was fantastic. It'd be flight. Yes. But so we make What's our, this got to do with Pittsburgh. <laughs> when do we get to Pittsburgh, Joe? So waiting on the transition, we make our way around. And by the way, that year, the Boston Red Sox were really good. We wanted to get tickets to as many ballparks as possible. We saw the uh, Yankee stadium, old Yankee stadium before it went bye-bye uh, in Washington, DC. We saw the nationals play nice ballpark there. We thought we'd just scalp tickets to a Boston Red Sox game. The team was so good that year. We went all the way around the stadium and not one person was scalping tickets. And I don't know if it's illegal to scalp tickets outside of or whatever, but usually at the last minute I can get tickets to a baseball game. Couldn't do that. We had gotten tickets to a stadium, though, that everybody had told us, and it's on lots of lists, is the, the most beautiful stadium and setting in the United States, and that's Pittsburgh. So on our way back, we're going to Carnegie Mellon, great place, went to this microbrewery in town that was uh, an old church that had been converted into this microbrewery and just stained glass windows and big tanks full of beer. What could be bad? But we get to the stadium at the end of this long road trip and Cheryl's got the printed off tickets that she'd gotten ahead of time. We go across the bridge to this beautiful ballpark and... This nice guy takes out his little scanner gun, scans the ticket, and it just makes this weird beep. Then he tries to scan it again. It won't go. He goes, ah, sometimes, sometimes these, you know, paper tickets, it doesn't here. Give me, give me one of your other tickets. Goes through all four tickets for our family. None of the tickets will scan. So then he lifts it up, takes a look at it, hands it to Cheryl and goes, these were for yesterday's game. <laughs> because nice. because we had planned the whole trip well in advance, she did the math wrong and had the wrong day that we were going to be there. So we go to the ticket counter, we go to the ticket counter and we get four new tickets to the game. So now we've paid double price because we're not going to leave. I, I didn't know what we were going to do. Did you scalp the other ones? We, four <laughs> tickets right, right here. Get four tickets. I got four great seats. Fantastic <laughs> seats. By the way, I know who's going to win. <laughs> So we get four new tickets. They're decent seats, but the team stinks in this particular year. And people are leaving the stadium in droves, but there's bunches of other people coming and sitting down by us, by the first baseline, like tons of people sitting down. And I have no idea what the hell's going on. And then we find out that because of the fact that we're a day late, we inadvertently had good seats for not just a game, but a train concert after the game that you were in for free if you got tickets to this particular day. So the joke in our family was we paid extra so that we could see a game and train, not just see the game. Love it. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine you can see that his time in the military taught him to be 
a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.